millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There are a lot of issues in the U.S.-China relationship that those two governments are trying to manage. And, you know, where do you put your priorities um, amongst a trade war, Ukraine, Taiwan, territorial disputes, climate change. There's a whole lot of things on the agenda. So what kicks to the top? You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Due to the dynamic nature of US-China relations, we would like to note that this conversation was recorded on the 18th of May, 2023. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Gabe Brotman, Distinguished Advisor with the ANU National Security College. And today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Fiona Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, where she studies technology and conflict in East Asia. Her research focuses on how countries leverage nuclear, space, cyber, and missile technology for coercion with a focus on China. Welcome, Fiona. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Gay. I'm thrilled to be with you. Great. Now, you've spent your career analysing publicly available material from China and listening and consulting in Washington, D.C. What is China's view of the current strategic environment in Northeast Asia? So I think it, it probably helps us to give a little bit of context for you know why I think it's useful to look at uh, how China evaluates this situation because you know we've had a lot of um, of concern in the past uh, year or so or a couple of years um, about the prospect of uh, conflict across the Taiwan Straits perhaps most um, kind of prominently with a couple of senior U.S. military officials who've indicated. Uh, that they're quite concerned about a conflict breaking out uh, in East Asia across the Taiwan Straits, in, in, in you know as as uh, soon as 20, uh, 2027. Um, and so the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, Staff uh, General Mark Milley, um, kind of clarified these concerns uh, by um, indicating that. Um, Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and Chairman uh, of the Central Military Commission that commands China's military, um, had given instructions to uh, the People's Liberation Army that they should be prepared to engage in a Taiwan conflict by 2027. Um, and so I think that uh, that is a kind of useful point of entry for thinking a little bit about, um, you know, how is China looking at this situation? You know, what under what context might they have 
um, thought about making those kinds of instructions. And so I think I'd point to two things in particular that, uh, you know, at least politically are, are concerning to China right now. The first is that I think China has been pretty surprised at the rapid deterioration of its relationship with the US. And I think I'd put that sort of starting at the um, release of the Trump administration's national security strategy in uh, 2017, which declared this kind of return to great power uh, competition uh, as the main security challenge that the United States faced. And so I think China uh, tends to really see its security environment in East Asia and globally as well through the lens of its relationship with the United States and increasingly so. Um, and in particular, what it perceives as sort of U.S. efforts to contain its rise and refusal uh, to accept a China sort of becoming a strong, uh, a strong power. Um, and in my experience, I think even in before uh, this downturn in U.S.-China relations, um, some Chinese experts sometimes would often see the U.S.'s relationships with its allies and what allies wanted in the region through this lens of uh, U.S.-China competition. And that sometimes, I think, led uh, Chinese experts to overlook uh, the kind of genuine security concerns that some of the U.S.'s allies might have. Um, and the fact that the U.S. is responsive to those concerns, sort of seeing that, you know, the United States tells its allies what to do rather than the U.S. sort of being responsive to its allies. So that's kind of the first thing I, w I would emphasize. Um, the second thing that I think is really important for understanding how China sort of sees its environment uh, is uh, what's happening across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, so Taiwanese politics, I think, plays a really important role in uh, China's assessment of its security environment, and it also has a really big impact on its relationship with the United States for, you know, reasons that have to do with the importance of uh, Taiwan in how the U.S.-China relationship uh, kind of normalized in the 70s. Um, so I think the reason why Taiwan has sort of re-emerged, if you like, in about the past five, six years as being a real challenge in regional security and for China specifically um, is because of uh, the election of uh, President Tsai Ing-wen, the current president uh, of Taiwan, uh, who is a member of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is sort of um, the, uh, the more pro-independence of the two Taiwanese uh, political parties. Um, and when Tsai Ing-wen took office, one of the things that she did was to reject this idea of the, or refuse to accept, I should say, uh, the 1992 consensus, this uh, kind of consensus uh, that uh, the, the other kind of main political party within Taiwan, the Kuomintang, the KMT, uh, had come to with the mainland that, you know, there was uh, sort of one China Um and uh, that sort of triggered the fears in Beijing that uh, Taiwan was going to be seeking uh, greater independence. Um, and I think the, the mainland then started to put a lot more pressure on the Tsai Ing-wen government, both diplomatically as well as politically, uh, and that drove Taiwan to seek more support from the United States and against this backdrop of increasing uh, US-China tension um, I think that has has led to uh, U.S. responses that China is now seeing as uh, sort of leading to this kind of creeping soft independence on Taiwan's mm. uh, part, um, which is different from the kinds of concerns I think that animated uh, U.S. Uh, China Taiwan relations in the early two thousands, where there was this concern that uh, the previous uh, Taiwanese president Chen Shui-bian was going to make a kind of formal declaration of independence, but now there's this uh, concern on Beijing's part that there's this kind of incremental steps that 
Taiwan is taking towards greater independence that really trigger its concerns uh, about, uh, you know, uh, the end of peaceful solutions or the end of possibility of reunification uh, between the mainland uh, and uh, and China. And obviously, the, you know, there are some of the issues in cross-strait relations uh, have to do with what's happened with the one country, two systems policy proposal mm. that China sort of has at the centre of its Taiwan policy, uh, given that that system, one of its sort of kind of key exemplars uh, was uh, was Hong Kong. Um, and uh, and you know the the uh, national security law and other responses to protests within uh, Hong Kong around the 2019 period, I think, have um, created a lot of legitimate questions about that model uh, for uh, Taiwan and its appeal going forward. But it's worth noting that even before uh, that uh, situation in Hong Kong, Taiwanese leaders were not particularly receptive to the idea. So I'd say you know the Taiwan and the US uh, uh, kind of relationship are two really key factors driving um, how China evaluates its security situation right now. We can talk a little bit uh, about, um, you know, what China's plans are for dealing with Taiwan and in particular, um, you know, does it actually have the capacity to seize Taiwan uh, by force and how does that sort of influence its policy choices going towards uh, that reunification issue? Yeah, because again, from your analysis of the Chinese perspective, and you did spend, what, 2015 to 17 doing a lot of work in China, and your conversations that you're having every day in Washington, I mean, what would be the catalyst for conflict over Taiwan and more broadly, maritime, the maritime environment? Yeah, so I think with uh, with Taiwan, I probably have slightly different concerns about what would catalyze conflict uh, in East Asia for the kind of maritime access and those kinds of issues, which is an important part of U.S.-China relations, um, and uh, and that over Taiwan specifically. So I think with Taiwan, my biggest concern would be that there would be a, deli- a deliberate decision on Beijing's part to use force against the island. Um, But that doesn't mean that I think uh, Xi Jinping has a date marked on his calendar saying this is going to be the day. Um, Rather, I think what I'm more concerned about is that China would perceive that there's some sort of US or Taiwanese action that crosses a red line for China, um, something that forecloses, in Beijing's opinion, the prospects for any sort of peaceful reunification going forward. Um, And uh, and it feels compelled to to act uh, against that particular that particular uh, action. And so I sort of see more likely that there would be a sort of provocation that Beijing feels compelled to respond to. And I think that doesn't necessarily require China to be ready to achieve a military victory in any Taiwan contingency, right? It has more to do with, you know, what it sees as being the the right thing to do uh, when faced with a particular type of political provocation. Um, because for what me, what do you think I, that I, provocation I, would look like? It's a good question. Um, I uh, unfortunately don't sit in the Chinese leadership compound to have a good sense for you know what would those actions be. I think uh, the visit of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to uh, Taiwan last year is a an example of something that certainly required a response on on Beijing's part, what would go beyond that to trigger something where China really thought that the pathway to peaceful reunification had closed uh, is another question. Um, but I think uh, it behooves, you know, the United States, Taiwan uh, and the PRC to sort of really think about what some of those possibilities are because we can't always predict what it is that other countries are going to see as a really mm. problematic mm. action. Um, so I can't necessarily tell. Um, 
But I just want to emphasize also, I, it's kind of hard for me to imagine how uh, otherwise uh, than this kind of provocation pathway, um, even if China had a, you know, reasonable prospects for victory in a conflict over Taiwan, which I don't think that they do at present, and I think it will be difficult even going forward, um, to justify the costs and the uncertainty of engaging in a really major military operation, and one that takes place under the shadow uh, of of a nuclear conflict should the United States uh, become involved. And I'll just note really quickly, I think, also that um, the uh, the way in which the Ukraine conflict has gone for Russia is mm. something that China is absolutely studying and trying to understand what that means for the future of conflict. Um, but it would be surprising if that conflict did not give any leader pause in thinking about just how effective the use of force might be in achieving um, these kinds of, uh, of of changes in the territorial status quo. Um, so that's uh, that's my sort of take on the Taiwan issue, that we're looking at more of that provocation pathway is what worries me. Um, I think when it comes to other types of conflicts in East Asia, so ones over the kinds of rights that different countries have in different parts uh, of the oceans, and so here yes, in particular yeah. I'm thinking of China's uh, assertion of certain rights along its maritime periphery uh, concerning the innocent passage of military vessels and military um, uh, uh, kind of equipment, um, I'm worrying more about accidents in this situation. Um, so I think we've seen in recent years both the US and the Australian militaries um, kind of raising concerns or awareness about what they consider to be unsafe uh, manoeuvres by China's People's Liberation Army uh, when they're entering uh, some airspace or maritime zones that China considers to be uh, ones that they have uh, particular rights over. Um, and uh, those unsafe incidents can end up with collisions that end up being deadly for some of those who are involved. So, for example, uh, back in 2000, um, right at the start of the Bush administration, there was this incident where a PLA fighter jet ended up crashing with a US EP-3 spy plane that was operating off the coast of Hainan Island in the South China Sea. Um the PLA fighter pilot actually perished in that uh, in that incident, and the U.S. crew was forced to make an emergency landing on Hainan Island, and they were then detained uh, for some period of time before the United States was able to kind of secure their release by coming up with the right kind of diplomatic apology to to make sure uh, that China was sort of satisfied. Mm. And I just worry that given the current state of U.S.-China tensions, the lack of crisis communication channels between the two mm. countries, it would be much harder to get to that kind of a diplomatic resolution today and we may see that kind of an incident. Can we just focus on that in terms of the, the lack of those crisis communication mechanisms? between the US and, and China. Can you just can we just explore that a bit more in terms of can you just highlight where the vacuum is, in which way, and in a way, uh, compare it to Cold War days and the arrangements that were in place then? Yeah, I mean, I so I would compare it in particular to some of the measures that are in place between the US and Russia today. I think that's a really helpful comparison. Yep. So um, the U.S. and China ha do have um, a hotline between the uh, leaders of the two capitals, and they also have arrangements in place for uh, link-ups between their two militaries. But there's a procedure in place that uh, requires both sides to sort of request a call 
um, and and for that to be approved by one side before they can actually go ahead and have that uh, conversation. So there is a mechanism, like a, a sort of infrastructure, if you like, that is in yes. place. I think yep. the real difficulty is using it, and I think that the two countries don't have a clear sort of shared understanding of what um, that kind of communication um, mechanism should be used for. Mm. Uh, and I'll just point to one quick example um, of this that back, uh, and I'm forgetting exactly which month it took place in, but when we had this incident of a, an alleged um, surveillance balloon floating over the top yes. of uh, yes. the United States and yes. going across the whole of the kind of continental U.S., um, my understanding is that the uh, United States uh, military requested to have a conversation with their Chinese counterparts, um, and that request was not approved on the PRC side. Mm. Um, and so this raised a lot of concerns in the United States mm. about, uh, you know, China's willingness to communicate and to kind of diffuse what did turn into politically at least a crisis. Um, but uh, on the PRC side, they were not claiming that this was in any way a military um incident uh, and so it made less sense perhaps from their perspective to be having a discussion between militaries when they had made it clear that this is not a military incident so there are kind of differences that come from you know what the mechanisms are but I think also one of the things that's really worth highlighting is that um, the uh, People's Liberation Army is a party military it has a very strong kind of uh, centralized control mechanisms um, and therefore, you don't have professional military officers that have the same sort of delegated degree of political authority to communicate with their counterparts, um, rather than, you know, sending mm. all of those communications up to the top leader, um, Xi Jinping, and gaining instructions from him. So having those kind of peer-to-peer -peer discussions are much more difficult in a Leninist military system than they may be in a more professional system that we're familiar with here in Australia or in our counterparts in the US. So just on those lack of that lack of mechanism between the two countries and the lack of definition, the balloon being a, a good example, is it is is that a concern for you? And and do you see this being addressed anytime soon? Um, so I'll start with the latter question. Do I expect it to be addressed anytime soon? Um, so I would say not necessarily, um, but you never say never, right? Uh, yep. We live in a pretty unpredictable world. Um, there are plenty of examples that many people will point to about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis of having really frightened the US and the Soviets into thinking very differently about their shared responsibilities for managing crises. I, uh, um, you know, you cannot predict what is around the corner. I hope that we don't have that kind of a crisis. But I would just emphasize, I would rather that we didn't wait until we had a really frightening crisis because that one, that Cuban Missile Crisis, only stayed peaceful out of a matter of sheer luck as well as some, yeah. you know, concerted diplomatic efforts. So mm -hmm. I would, I would strongly advocate for it to be uh, addressed uh, um, you know uh, soon but I don't I'm not particularly optimistic for the US and China to be able to come to some agreement as to how they can make their two different systems and they align their expectations um, anytime soon but it really does I can say a little bit more I, I think it does concern me because I think that there are um, plenty of opportunities uh, for 
crises uh, to emerge between the US and China. And I think there are also plenty of opportunities for those crises to escalate into conflicts and for conflicts to escalate into more uh, more dramatic conflicts. And, um, you know, I'll point to just quickly in the Syria conflict, there are mechanisms that the US and Russia had in place to de-conflict where their militaries were operating I know this is something that uh, some people are quite concerned about, but if you had a contingency on the Korean Peninsula, how would the US and China deconflict what they were doing in that instance? So there's a rationale there. Um, I am not as sure how concerned uh, our Chinese expert counterparts are at this time, but um, I think there was some quite concerted research that China's military did following that EP3 incident in 2000 to sort of better understand uh, crisis management principles. Um, and I point to a really great piece of research that um, Alistair Ian Johnson, who is a, a Harvard professor and expert on Chinese foreign policy, did um, a couple of years ago highlighting, you know, what were the kind of crisis management principles that China mm. had learned and had kind of um, developed you know, things like maintaining flexibility, having uh, limited goals, um, being restrained with military operations, trying to avoid the other side's kind of core values, not issuing ultimatums, you know, trying to anticipate unintended consequences. So a whole sort of set of principles that they had sort of learned uh, by studying and thinking about crisis management, including from the Cold War period, sometimes in concert with uh, with US uh, think tanks, um, but he also indicated that these principles were often in tension with some of the ways that China either politically or militarily thought about operating uh, in uh, in its uh, foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so with things like its sensitivity to perceive challenges to its sovereignty makes things like, you know, um, having limited goals and being flexible quite difficult from China's mm. perspective. So. Um, you know, the thinking is, is is done there, but, you know, where the rubber hits the road in terms of knitting that together with what China, its kind of objectives would be uh, in a contingency, I think, uh, are tricky. Do you think it's going to take a crisis to actually get the two countries sitting around the table agreeing on mechanisms and uh, agreeing on definitions? Um like I said, I would hope not, uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to pin my hopes on a crisis sort of doing the work there. Um, but I think, you know, part of the reason why I mentioned this research that took place after the EP3 incident is to show that, you know, there are constituencies within China that have researched these issues that are invested in, you know, better crisis communications between the two countries um, that think about these issues carefully. Mm. So it's really a question of sort of getting that political will um, yeah, in place up the chain. Uh, on both sides. Um, yeah, and I think uh, there are a lot of issues in the US-China relationship that those two governments are trying to manage and, you know, where do you put your priorities um, amongst a trade war, Ukraine, Taiwan, territorial disputes, um, climate change, uh, there's a whole lot of things on the agenda. So what kicks to the top um, is a, you know, is a tricky question. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey ladies, ever thought about studying national security but talked yourself out of it? Well, I'm here to talk you back into it. This year, in partnership with the National Intelligence Community, we'll be offering several women the opportunity to complete the Master of National Security Policy fee-free. Our degree is the only one of its kind in Australia and tailored to you. Follow the link in the show notes for more information. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia. Is there a role for any multilateral fora to play here in bringing these discussions to reality? I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I'm I'm going to go off on a totally different tangent here for a second. Um, which is just to say one of the areas that I've been quite uh, heavily involved in is a lot of the track 1.5 or track 2, so sort of unofficial but with official observer mm. dialogues between the US and China on issues of nuclear risk reduction. So that's a core area of my research is looking at that nuclear relationship. Um and uh, for years and years now, uh, there has been energy interest, uh, especially on the U.S. side, on trying to have an official U.S.-China nuclear uh, dialogue to sort of discuss what does strategic stability look like in this relationship? How do they try and avoid the use of nuclear weapons? Um, and uh, for whatever reason, there's been a lot of reluctance on China's side to do that officially. But um, in recent years, the uh, P5, so uh, Russia, China, US, uh, UK and France, um, have had a multilateral dialogue on nuclear matters in which China has been quite actively involved. Um, And so it seems that there are opportunities or places in which sometimes China won't engage on the bilateral level but it will see that multilateral option as being a way in which it can engage on some of these issues. Obviously, though, I think that puts a kind of ceiling on just how much depth you can get into in terms of something like crisis communications that, Mm. you know, you may be able to knit out principles, but um, are you going to be able to, um, you know, communicate in that kind of real-time, quick, candid way to try and resolve a crisis, I think, is something that may be more difficult to kind of knit out in a in a uh, multilateral environment. Mm. What is the reluctance of China? Why the reluctance of China? Why the reticence? Um, again, I uh, so I haven't had the kind of really in depth conversations that I would like to have to be able to give you. You know, this is exactly what the position is. But what I hear uh, is that sometimes uh, China is reluctant to talk about. Um, what the U.S. has described as kind of guardrails in the relationship to try and keep those crises um, managed or keep the relationship managed in that way because they see guardrails as something that uh, enables cars to drive faster. Mm. So it's a sense that, you know, putting in place where the boundaries are 
um, enables, uh, you know, the United States or other countries to kind of push up against those boundaries and push up against those mechanisms, um, being confident that they will be able to do so without triggering a crisis. Um, it's worthwhile noting, though, that that kind of boundary pushing is something that uh, China does itself, uh, and it has done it, you know, in some of the kind of grey zone activities that we see in the South China Sea, but um, perhaps less visibly, um, the research that I've been doing on China's approach to kind of getting leverage and uh, thinking about how you would escalate, in particular, a conventional conflict like one over Taiwan that wasn't going well, involves threatening to use not nuclear weapons like uh, what we see in Russia with uh, Vladimir Putin's veiled threats, um, but rather threatening to use some of these uh, other kinds of non-nuclear weapons that nevertheless can have strategic effects like counter space weapons or precision conventional missiles on US bases or um, naval vessels in the Indo-Pacific, offensive cyber operations against critical infrastructure. And the reason that those capabilities provide a country with leverage is because they butt up, you know, against that nuclear threshold. Mm. They share technology with nuclear weapons. Um, they can trigger these sorts of pressures where a country thinks that, you know, you are using um, some of these capabilities to try and degrade their nuclear arsenal. Um, and so you get this kind of miscalculation uh, potential uh, from engaging in that kind of behaviour. And that's another way in which I think China does a similar thing of sort of trying to find out where the other side's thresholds are and coming right up against them, but yes. encouraging the other country to be the one to spill over um, into that next level uh, of a nuclear conflict. Yeah, that constant pushing, testing. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, and, and just in terms of the, the discussion about those mechanisms, do you sense any reluctance or reticence from the US side? Um, I think more uh, my the, the sense that I get on the US side is more like, okay, if we're not getting engagement from China in this idea of communicating and, uh, and putting in place some of these mechanisms, what can we do ourselves? Yes. If we can't, you know, establish that set of communications, how are we going to be able to communicate uh, with China if they're not, you know, willing to have that direct link up? Um, you know, what does that mean for how we have to think about our own operations uh, going forward? And so I think there's more a sense of if China won't engage directly, what else is kind of uh, there in the kit? Mm, what other vehicles? Mm, mm. Yeah. So can we now turn to Australia? And you've written and spoken extensively about what Australia needs to do to address the strategic challenges of the future. In light of AUKUS and the blueprint set out by the Defence Strategic Review, what does Australia need to focus on to build the resources to manage the strategic risks that we face and also our national security ambitions? So I think um, I'll just uh, say I think AUKUS and the DSR have put a lot of emphasis on Australia having the right kinds of capabilities um, to meet the kinds of strategic challenges going forward, have articulated, you know, what are our interests that we're trying to protect. And I think really importantly is also spoken about how our response can't just be a military one, right, that this needs to be integrated with other aspects of Australia's foreign policy as well as its economic um, policy. 
So I really applaud that uh, approach. And I think one of the areas that I have heard emphasized as being the biggest sort of challenge that Australia might face with a really ambitious acquisition program like Hmm. the uh, nuclear-powered conventional submarines uh, under Pillar 1 of AUKUS um, is really getting enough people with the right skills to be able to realise those capabilities. Um, so often, you know, you'll hear people talk about, well, how many nuclear engineers are graduating from Australian universities? We really need to kind of massively ramp up that kind of technical ca- uh, kind of capacity. But I think one of the things that we sometimes might overlook a little bit in that emphasis on getting the kind of technical skills in place is that we also need to have the kind of ability to think strategically Um, The literacy, I guess, if you like, in understanding some of the things we've been talking about today in this discussion, right? Mm. So um, understanding the Chinese military, understanding um, Chinese foreign policy and the kind of system that China is operating within, um, understanding the kind of deterrence and escalation dynamics that could emerge in our own region and learning from what those previous crises and conflicts sort of looked like. Um, and understanding nuclear strategy, uh, which is an area that I uh, am particularly sort of focused on. So you could call this a kind of strategic literacy, if you like, with three parts to it. Um, so I think uh, we need to be able to sort of understand uh, what it means for um, nuclear weapons to kind of have a extend this shadow over any crisis, conflict or peacetime interactions that we are having in our region um, with China. Um, with uh, obviously North Korea, there's a lot of nuclear players within our region. Um, but, you know, thinking about how do you get from a Taiwan contingency or even some sort of an, an accident in the, you know, in the South China Sea um, up to the possibility of a nuclear conflict occurring, how likely is that? What are all the kind of steps and twists and turns that you might see along the way? Um and thinking about how those expectations and that dampening effect, uh, you know, would would uh, alter the behaviour of the US, of China, of Taiwan, and then thinking about how they should start shape our own sort of interactions. So that's like one example of, I think, the kind of, um, you know, skills we need to be really investing in as a country to sort of help us to make good decisions about how we are using our capabilities, about how we interact uh, with China you know, even this discussion we've just been having about kind of crisis communications. Yes, and yes. You know, what role can we play perhaps in trying yes. to, to, you know, help some of those um, those conversations take place? What role would we play in, in terms of sort of signalling what um, the alliance's intentions are, um, especially as we deploy some of these high-end capabilities that do end up touching on some fairly sensitive parts of military capabilities. So, you know, uh, conventional nuclear-powered submarines and indeed any sort of submarine is operating in an environment where there are also um, ballistic missile submarines that carry nuclear weapons that may be floating around in the deep blue out there, um, operating in space, operating in cyberspace, also aspects of uh, where the DSR has put emphasis on. So we're touching in those areas that start to have a lot of sort of potential for um, escalatory risk, Um that we need to, you know, know exactly what it is that we're doing and be clear about what those risks are and how best to manage them. Um, so I think uh, investing in that kind of uh, education and that kind of thinking and those kinds of exchanges uh, are really important. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I will just emphasize I went to the United States about a decade ago to do my PhD because I really wanted to study the US-China relationship. Um, and uh, where I ended up going at MIT, there's an extraordinary depth of expertise on nuclear strategy and China's military uh, that I was able to kind of learn from. Um, and that was about a decade ago now. And my hope is that um, as Australia is developing these new capabilities uh, as part of AUKUS and um, others that are mentioned in the dis- defence uh, strategic review and especially yes. the kind of long-range strike capabilities, um, that we also invest in the kind of expertise that I was able to gain uh, in that uh, in those studies overseas um, that will help us to sort of think that dozen steps ahead about China's response and the escalation risks we might be facing and how best to use those capabilities to secure our national interest. Yeah, and it's not just uh, just on that uh, the, we need more experts on nuclear, more nuclear strategists, but also just in terms of legislation and public policy on that because we've sort of dealt with it again in that sort of that in, uh, multilateral sort of context but in terms of the our position on issues it's um yeah, it's an interesting it's interesting yeah i think so and i think it's one of those areas where you know uh, part of what um AUKUS in particular is going to do is going to mean much tighter kind of interactions between the US and Australia on some of these kinds of operations and posture questions. Um, And I think if we can come to the table with our own kind of independent judgments about how China might react, um, you know, what we think is the best way to sort of manage the Mm. situation in which Mm. we find ourselves, I think that's a huge value added to um, the relationship to regional security and ultimately uh, ensuring Australia stays uh, safe, secure and prosperous. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you, Fiona. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. And there's a, a real call to action there uh, for, to our public policy leaders um, that we need more expertise on in nuclear strategy and uh, we need more nuclear strategists and we also need more experts on the Chinese military. So, Thanks very much for laying that down and uh, and for the conversation today. It's been a terrific conversation, a lot of food for thought uh, for public policy leaders, public policy makers there, and, as I said, a call to action. So thank you, Fiona, and uh, enjoy the rest of your time here in Australia and look forward to um, seeing you again in some other forum. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks.